I'm going to get to Psalm 32 today, but I'd like to start with a verse out of Psalm 25, which was in our readings this week. How many are keeping up? That's awesome. <laughs> How many are within three weeks? That's good. <laughs> no complaints here. You know, even if you're on January 12th, read it, get to 13. Just keep at this thing. It's worthwhile. Um, you might get inspired one day and catch up. I, but does it really matter? I, it's putting yourself in the Word, making yourself available to God to speak to you through that. And it's, it's valuable. Psalm 25, verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, O Lord, are good. How many have prayed that before? God, help me. Please forgive me. You know, for myself, there are, there are times when I felt like I did one of the big ones, so to speak, where you... You have this overwhelming sense of, would God even consider forgiving me of this thing? Or there have been other times where there's a, a habitual sin where you're going, would he forgive this again? But I want to tell you that one of the things connected to my life at this point is that generally I go to bed feeling clean. You know, I, I, I have this sense that God truly releases me. Now, there have been times where it didn't, you know, a particular item might not have, have released in that day or even in the week. But as I continued in the Lord and, and pursued Him, their forgiveness came. And it's huge to just be able to say, the slate is clean. You know, and that that's one of the preeminent things of the gospel that we hold is that Jesus forgives sin. And so when we walk through these, old pa these passages, you know, even I would say to parents, it's, it's vitally important that you train your children in such a way that you confront sinful behavior and attitudes and values, so to speak. You, you challenge those things when you see them in your children. You, you can't just let that go and expect them to catch it without any kind of help. Um, that you confront sinful behavior, but you also, you bring them to a point of acknowledgement that this isn't healthy, this isn't right, this isn't appropriate. And beyond that, there needs to be a confession out of their mouths that says, this was wrong. And then you take it into that step of repentance that says, I need to change the way that I'm doing things. You know, it's not enough, to, oh, I was wrong. But it's more like, where are you going to go with that? If that's a bad attitude today, it's also going to be a bad attitude tomorrow. And so there needs to be a turning away from that particular behavior or attitude. And then finally, there's this idea of restoration, that, 
This is taking you to a place of health. It isn't just, well, you got caught, so, you know, need to change your ways or get sneakier. No, this is about changing a life and, and moving into well-being. Some years ago, we had the privilege of having a young boy in our home. He was about 10 or so when we got him. And this was attached to family. And he had been adopted as an infant. Um, the person that adopted him was an extremely needy person and wanted to feel loved. And so she brought him into her home, single-parent home, and virtually gave him anything he wanted and spoke very little direction into his life, but more was just about giving him whatever he wanted. Well, when he got to our home, it was more like, please fix him. And you're going, okay. One of the things that really came out almost instantly was family mealtime. When you suddenly come from a home where you've been given anything you want and whatever you want, and you're in a household with four kids and two adults, and you're being told, no, it's not important to us that you get the biggest and best piece in the first serving. In fact, that seems pretty selfish. And this kid would gobble everything down, really seldom chew even, so they could quick to get the seconds before someone else did. So even his digestive health was messed up connected to this. But you're going, part of the reason that offends me is that there's enough selfishness in me that I want the best portions too. But hopefully you come to a place in, in community where you realize this is all temporal and really the interaction of love with one another and, and caring for one another is more important than even the, the amount or the best in this moment. But to walk through that in family life, you know, that's part of getting the rough edges rubbed off, right? So that you come to this place of health. Now, tragically... This young man chose to do his own thing, go his own way. Now at roughly 30, he's back living with mom, stealing from her and trashing the house when he gets upset. And I'm not sure when he's going to get it together, so to speak. I pray for him regularly. So I do love him. But I know that he's going to have to come to a, a moment that says, this isn't taking me where I want to go. In Scripture, it's not just the young that have issues. In fact, I was thinking this week, three most prolific writers of Scripture, you know, Moses with the first five books, and David with the Psalms, and Paul you know, with most of the epistles, um, they all had some significant sin issues at portions of their life, right? I mean, David, you, the, the, you know, the one that stands out is Bathsheba, but remember later in life when 
he counts the troops and, and it brings a plague on the nation of Israel? That was a significant sin. You know, it, in some ways, you look at that and go, why, why was that such a big deal? My impression is, it's like looking at the checking account and saying, well, I guess we can do this for God, rather than asking Him first, what do you desire? It's like looking at the possessions in hand and then deciding, well, God could be involved here rather than saying, what is God's desire in this? It's the opposite of faith. Now, I'm not saying that we just step into foolishness, but there is a fine line where often we count the troops, so to speak, in the evaluation of whether we should go to war or or whether we ask God, what are your desires in this thing? You know, so that was a significant moment. I mean, Paul then, too, you look at his life and, and you're going, before he came to Christ or before he had this encounter with Christ, he did some messed up things when he's throwing Christians in prison and putting others to death. You know, the fact that God would reach out to him is amazing. I had the reason I say Moses to last is because after last week, there was something that uh, kind of a nugget that came to me, and I'd like to share that this morning. Charlie got very close to stepping on my stuff. Didn't do it, but I'm <laughs> grateful. But uh, re- remember, we mentioned that Levi had been a person of violence. And when it came time for Jacob to pray blessing on his children, he told Simeon and Levi, you've been people of violence, and you're not going to flourish like you did. In fact, your your groups are just going to be disseminated among the others. Well, the tribe of Levi stands out, and they step up, and they become the priests. But they don't hold land like everyone else. And so that that prophecy was fulfilled and there is a family mark that is prone toward violence. Nevertheless, God allows blessing to them as they respond to him. And and where that is so important to me is like, it doesn't really matter what you've come out of or what your family training has been. God can take those things and use them for value if you'll let him. And some of the things that may have been used in, well, stubbornness may be a family trait. Although it seems like most of our families got that. In a godly sense, that's a perseverance that is able to walk through things that, that you know, where it might cripple or, or cause others to fall apart. It's just a, an example. But in this thing with Moses, um, remember when it, we, we mentioned the story of him striking the rock rather than speaking to it, and that was an act of violence and in some ways attached to his past? It's interesting that, that when he was called, there were two things that, that, that stood out to me in, in regard to the, the staff, this thing that he struck the rock with, the staff was was brought to him in a measure of power and a 
a statement of the authority of God. And so when he threw it down, remember it turned into a snake and he's told, pick it up by the tail, which that doesn't work except that it was a spiritual event. But that same staff had been used when he went to Pharaoh and he threw it down and then Later on, each time a plague came, he held the staff up. And it was used as a declaration, God is doing something now, and the plague would come. Then when they were out into the wilderness, and they get to the Red Sea, and they need a miraculous provision or, or, or a miracle to save their lives, what happens? He holds the staff up all through the night, and the sea is parted. They get into the battle with the Amalekites. I think it's Exodus 17. He holds the staff up, and they have victory. When his hands grow tired and he, and he starts to come down, then they start losing. And so Aaron and Hur end up holding up his arms for the battle so they can have victory. The staff's involved. The first time that they need water from the rock, God tells them, strike the rock. Use the staff. And then he comes to this moment where God says, this time I want you to speak. I'll be seen as holy. Just speak to the rock. Well, the backstory, you know, the history of this, as was mentioned earlier, in his call in Exodus chapter 3 and then 4, God calls him and says, I want you to go represent me and speak. And Moses goes, uh, there's a problem here. I've always been slow of speech. I am not a good public speaker. This isn't going to work. And God says, uh, who made your mouth? You know, who? Do you think I'm unaware of this? It's, it's just like when we go before the Lord and we, we have this sense He's calling us into something and we're kind of going, uh, yeah, I don't have those skills. I'm not very good at that. And we would dismiss it saying it's impossible. And God's going, uh, who makes him? Who makes man? Mute or deaf, seeing or blind, is it not I? Now go. And Moses tries again. He says, please send someone else. And God gets angry. <laughs> I know I've been in this thing long enough to know you don't want to make God mad, right? I think most of us would embrace that. And, and so it's a... It's a Critical moment, and God says, I'm all, I've already sent Aaron to meet you. Your brother's a good speaker. In other words, shut up and get going. Paraphrase. Um, in the sixth chapter, a little later, when, when they're going through these events, you know, where the plagues, twice Moses tells God, I can't. If the Israelites won't listen to me, what makes you think the Egyptian king will? He 
you just go, this is a bad decision. It's interesting to me, God really wasn't committed to having Pharaoh change his mind anyway, so why did he need a persuasive speaker? He had something else in mind. But it was more important that Moses do what God had asked him to do, which really brings me to this point of, what if God asks you to do something, you know you do it poorly, and he knows it as well, and he's not at all bothered by you doing it poorly? That goes all against our thing of excellence. Kind of messes me up to even think about that, that he might call me into something that I'm disastrous at, but it's still what he's asked me to do. Chew on that for a while. You don't have a right to just dismiss it because excellence isn't associated with your name in that area. That said, okay, we've established he is not a good speaker. And yet God brings him to this moment and he tells him, bring your staff. You know, this thing that has been used in so many miraculous settings and then speak to the rock. That's just different. And yet it's an opportunity for the holiness of God to be seen and demonstrated in an amazing way. And it is also a moment where his speech, so to speak, is used for God's glory in a way that goes way beyond what we would anticipate. Well, he blew it. (laughs) That was all illustration to get to that point. Whether you're young or old, there are times when you need God's forgiveness. Psalm 32 is one of David's writings. So let's walk through. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy's the person whose sin is forgiven. It's covered like it's not there. When I was a kid, um, long, long ago in a faraway place, (laughs) um, 1960s, early 60s, we all wore tight jeans then. Uh, That was the style. And we'd wear, as kids, you'd wear the jeans till they wore out. You didn't have to distress them. They, were, they got distressed. And, uh, you know, patched regularly. But I was a little bit stocky. That's all I want to admit to. Uh, but I remember busting out the, my seam numerous times. And hopefully you had a jacket with you if it happened at school. Wrap around. Or I have a distinct memory of a 
a family coming over to visit us, and I was, I, I thought the girl was kind of sweet, about my age, and showing off, and, and rip, <laughs> you know what's happened. You just need to get out of the room <laughs> as gracefully as you can up the stairs. But I, when I think about this, and sins being covered, it's, it, that's one of the things that comes to mind. It's like, I don't have to be embarrassed about this anymore. I don't have to worry about that. And that's, that's what Christ does for us. He takes away the embarrassment. And he covers our shame, so to speak. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. He doesn't keep a record. Well, that's five times today. Five times this week. You know, he's not the accountant that way. In whose spirit is no deceit. He says, blessed is a man who's, who's been cleaned. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When we refuse to deal with the sin of our lives, there is something that, whether we want to admit it or not, just drags on us, right? It's that loss of energy. It's that cloud, so to speak. It's that going through the motions, pasting on the grin when it's appropriate, but in that quiet moment, just sorrow being there. He said, my strength just, it ebbed away. There was, wasn't that peace? But he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the beauty of it. He says, I quit trying to avoid. I, I, I moved into confrontation mode, so to speak. I admitted what was going on. I didn't try to just go along as, as if nothing happened. That, that didn't work. But instead, I addressed the issue before you. And you released me. You forgave my iniquity. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He says, I call out to you, and you answer my prayer. You protect my life. You bring 
you bring peace around me. You allow me to to live with a confidence that says, I'm taken care of. What an amazing thing that is. He says, now this, this moves into what I think is the work of the Spirit. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye on you. It's like God places His Spirit in us to help us move away from our sin. To be counseled and instructed and taught in such a way that we don't have to live with those patterns about us. He breaks off that sinful nature. He says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. He says, animals are forced to do what's necessary to stay close. He says, you need to stay close to God willingly. Don't force him to hem you in, to drag you by the the jaw, so to speak. Don't force him to push you into places or pull you to to get close, but rather draw near to him on purpose. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's the contrast. And then he says, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. He says, Let the fact that you've been forgiven become part of your declaration of joy in God. Let the fact that He has cleansed you be a part of your celebration of life. I want to give one final illustration. This is out of the readings in Acts. When Peter went to Cornelius' household, you know, as a result of a couple visions, Cornelius was a Gentile soldier that um, God wanted to show favor on. The Jewish believers didn't even know if the Gentiles could be saved at that point. And so the fact that Peter would get called and said, don't treat them as impure, and called to go see them, that that was a big deal. And so he gets there, and he's presenting things, and Peter hears the two visions as they're, you know, he knows what his has been, he hears Cornelius share his story, and Peter's going, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in him every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter's bridging a gap, or a gap has been bridged in his thinking, and he's saying, there's no one that can't be a part of God's kingdom. Every single person has opportunity to embrace Christ. And so he goes on to tell of the work of Jesus. 
And he says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. So all of us will stand before God and we will have to give an account, but the one that we are giving account to is Jesus. He says that's the authority that's been given to him. But he says everyone who believes in him and receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So that's Peter's message. Now, these people have the an incredible experience with the Holy Spirit. And for those of us that are used to to enjoying that, oftentimes we get preoccupied with that part of the story. But Peter's essential message here was that everyone has opportunity for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. That's the declaration that he's making. I want to share one other verse. In Acts chapter 11, when Peter goes back to Jerusalem and has to explain his behavior of what's gone on, and they're challenging him, why did you even go there? And he talks about the visions, and then he talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out on them, just like it had happened to the, the, them in Acts chapter 2. Them and them. You know what I mean. Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 2, similar events. The conclusion isn't, isn't it great that they get the Holy Spirit? It's not what the conclusion is. It says, when they heard what Peter had said, God gave the same gift to them he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus. He says, they they went silent And then they glorified God, saying what? Then the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So what is their their declaration? They are saying, the Gentiles have found salvation and the forgiveness of sins, the changing of life, as we have too. It's really important to keep the main things the main things, right? You've heard that regularly. This idea of God's forgiveness is crucial to all that we do. It's a wondrous, wondrous thing. Through Jesus Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. And it's powerful. Whether it be young or first in the kingdom or whether it be many years in. The forgiveness of sins is something that we can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all through life. He forgives all types of sin in all types of people. What a privilege it is to be clean. Now, as I close in prayer... Um, I'm assuming that some of you need a sense of God's forgiveness in your hearts today. That's available through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about what you do. It's not about how fervent you are. 
It has nothing to do with your zeal and what you promise to do because he might forgive you. But it's an acknowledgement that in his amazing power, he has chosen to love you to the degree that says, I will release you from this and I will pay the price and I will set you free. So let's pray and ask God to do that in our hearts as well. Lord, whether young or old, new in you or serving you for many years, we ask again for that cleansing that comes from you. Wash away our sin. We thank you again that this is available to us. We rejoice in the peace that you bring to our lives. We thank you that we have opportunity to be set free and restored that we might have relationship with you. We love you this day. Amen. Why is forgiveness such a big deal to God? Maybe the best illustration I can give you is that when a parent has a young child, they acknowledge that mud puddles are like magnets. The kid's going to run into them and get dirty, and they're going to have to be washed up. Now, does the parent do that on their own, go run through the puddles? Not usually. They've learned not to. If you put out a box of toys in a room, the kid is going to toss them everywhere. And the parent is going to train them how to put them back when they're done. Now, does the parent throw it all over the house? Hopefully not. They've learned. In the Lord, he does everything perfect. And yet he sees us running through puddles, making messes. But he has made provision for our cleansing so that we can still continue in that full relationship with them. Part of repentance is not only just calling out to the Lord and saying, please cleanse me, but it's starting to learn to stay out of the puddles and pick up your own messes, right? And maybe one of the next steps in your process now is to say, I need to make some changes. And that might be that I don't, you know, I guess I don't do the things that I did, but how are you going to get there? And you ask the Lord, okay, what, what changes of lifestyle and, and endeavor do I need to make? But it also may mean I need to go talk with someone about this and, and actually make confession to them. Or if I've wronged someone, I may need to go say, I was wrong here. Please forgive me. That's part of the process. But you have the Lord with you to help you through that for restoration. It's a beautiful thing. So I encourage you, walk through that. And allow His cleansing to be a consistent part of life. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy what it is to be forgiven and clean and at peace with you. I ask that as each one goes into the community, that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. 
I ask that you enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom, to be loving toward all. Gift them with the supernatural, I ask. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day. Amen. God bless you.